Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Well, ho, 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 ho. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone, from Inside Curling. Kevin and Warren, you're here, boys. By the way, Warren, okay, remember, we weren't supposed to do it this early. Warren, it's still dark here in Edmonton, okay? What are you doing to me? And Martin, he doesn't like to get up this early either. This time of year, it's still dark in Edmonton at 10 a.m. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> Kev, are you doing this from your bed or you're up? You're up and around. <laughs> oh, no, Jimmy. Up, up, up and excited and ready to go. Yeah, we've got you back from a seven-week road trip. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We've got a great show coming up for you right now. Last Rock, eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. It's clean. Oh, oh. Don't kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Right on the button, guys. Right here. Last stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Well, welcome to... Another episode of Inside Curling. Uh, by the way, Kevin and Warren, by the end of the show, I want to know what you want for Christmas, Warren. Make sure you haven't been naughty or nice, okay? Uh, you too, Kev. Uh, what we really want for Christmas is more and more curling. We're going to talk about a bunch of things today. We want to recognize our sponsors, Sports Interaction. They bring you what is happening around the curling world. Nestle Boost is the sponsor of the Mailbag. Coyote Tractor, thanks a lot to those guys sponsoring Hot Rock Topics. Storytime is brought to you by Meridian and... In the house is our guest segment that we normally do, and it's brought to you by Goldline. Here's what's on the show today. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening around the curling world. Um, we're going to have an in- interesting chat on hot rock topics. And then we're going to do a special mailbag segment. We've got a few of them that we want to try and uh, pile through. They're, they're great. Uh, what's happening around the curling world, the Netherlands uh, final Olympic qualification for men and women ended this past weekend. So we're going to give you an update there. The Canadian Mixed Doubles Olympic qualification is scheduled to be in Portage-la-Prairie December 27th to January 2nd, but who knows what's going to happen there. Uh, COVID is rearing its ugly head still, uh, so we'll talk about that. The Scotties Tournament of Hearts provincial playoffs were happening this past weekend in a couple of provinces, and uh, Manitoba seems to be rather interesting what's going to happen there. Brad Gushu announced this week who his ultimate player would be uh, for the Olympics, Probably no surprises. Our Hot Rock Topics uh, is going to be special grievances. Warren, you have about nine of those every show. So I'm not... <laughs> yeah, hard to pick one. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's going to work. People want to know, okay, what's, what's Hanson's number one? Um, all right, let's get down to it. Uh, what's happening around the curling world uh, brought to you by Sports Interaction. 
Thank you very much to those guys providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker. And, of course, you got to be 19 to play. Uh, the Netherlands, Warren, tell us what's going on there with the Olympic qualification. Well, the qualifying uh, process to bring out the final three men's teams and the three final women's teams concluded last weekend in the Netherlands. And let's first take a look at what happened on the women's side. The first one out of the, out of the hopper was Eve Muirhead from Scotland, which, again, she struggled at the start of that event. And so finally she got things together and became the first team to qualify. Japan made it out, and so did Korea. An interesting Korea, Kim Young-jung, was a silver medalist in Korea in 2018, so she'll be back. The other seven countries that we've already talked about will be China, Canada, USA, Sweden, Switzerland, and Russia. And, of course, the gold medalist from 2018, Anna Hasselberg. On the men's side, the number one qualifier was Norway, and we haven't seen Norway at that level for a few years, so interesting to see them back. Italy, and the third entry will be Denmark, who defeated in a very interesting game that I watched, the Czech Republic, to become the, uh, the 10th team in the Olympics. They will join China, Canada, USA, Sweden, Switzerland, Russia, and Denmark. And again, both the silver and gold medalists from 2018 will be there. John Schuster, the gold medalist from USA, and Nick Adin from Sweden. So everything's set. Now all we need is uh, probably COVID to go away, and the Olympics uh, will be underway before we know it. The Canadian mixed doubles uh, Olympic trials are scheduled to be in Portage La Prairie, December 27th to the 2nd. But with COVID uh, kicking around still, or more than kicking around, we're not sure what the impact will be in that event. Warren, can you give us an update there on the latest? Well, we don't really know. I've put out a little note on our Facebook group this past weekend to kind of get the thoughts from our from our fans as to what might happen. And there was certainly a diverse number of opinions as to what could take place and what should take place. But I guess we don't know because Manitoba does have that new rule in place that no tournaments are allowed, I believe, until January 11th. So whether or not they're able to move this event under the radar, similar to what happened in Calgary last year with the bubble, and they're able to create that kind of a situation in Portage. Uh, right now, I'm sure there's negotiations going on hot and heavy between Curling Canada and the Manitoba government to be able to make this happen. And I would also imagine, because they may be not be sure of it, that they may be trying to find an alternative site, and I think most likely would probably be Calgary, because the, the laws in Alberta are a little different in the past and appear to be still different at the moment, but that could change uh, on the flip of a coin. So I think it's all up in the air. Um, unfortunately, this has been left very late. I'm not sure why it's been left so late. I'm sure there's a reason. But I would have kind of thought they might have tried to play it earlier in December than they are. Maybe there were some other conflicts with some of these provincial playoffs. I don't know. But uh, right now, I guess everybody's going to cross their fingers that that's going to happen in Portage the Prairie on the dates indicated. But some interesting teams. And Kevin, what do you think about the uh, the teams are going in this thing? Who do you like to be teams that uh, our fans should watch? Yeah, you know, with the, with the teams, we've got obviously a lot of strength, but I think there's kind of like a, a tiers. There's a, a five top tier that I think one of them should probably come out. Three teams in, in kind of a second tier that are really good that could also come out, uh, in my opinion. Now, you got Chelsea Carey, who's just obviously a great shooter, with uh, Colin Hodgson. A great sweeper and, and obviously a great shooter too. I like that team. Carrie Anderson and Brad Jacobs obviously has to be ranked right up there. And of course, John Morris loves mixed doubles with Rachel Holman. 
that's probably the favorite going in, in my in my opinion, that team. And uh, Sahidek and Colton Lott, so Kadriana and Colton, are really good at mixed doubles. Like, it's not a name that everybody knows unless you follow mixed doubles, but they're just really good at that. Like, they, you know, they, you don't hear about them a lot in four-person curling. Colton played in the in the Briar, in the uh, Olympic trials, sorry. And then you got Vel Sweeting and Mark Kennedy, the Southpaws. So those are kind of the, the five favorites, if you will. And uh, But I also like uh, Selena Nedjevin and, uh, and Langer, Brent Lang. Um, Laura Walker and Kirk Myers work hard at the game. Um, I, I wouldn't put them as part of the favorite group, but I wouldn't be hor- horribly surprised if they ended up winning. And Lisa Weagle with John Epping. The only problem there is, you know, Ep- Epping not a great sweeper, uh, but Lisa is. So, and that's another really good team. So those are kind of my top eight right there. I'd be pretty surprised if anybody outside of that top eight were to win this thing. I think there's one team that's certainly not uh, been a household name, but they've done well in mixed doubles. I believe did win it a couple of years ago, and that's the Martin Griffith team that could be a sleeper. So I think that's another one that could be in there. But other than that, I do agree with you. Those are the, the teams that you should be looking at. It's a 16-team event. They'll go into two pools of eight. After the round robin, the top six teams will enter into playoff. That'll actually conclude with a page system play down, which uh, looking at exactly how they're doing, and this is a little confusing, but uh, that's the plan. And the final winner will be determined on January 2nd. You guys are picking every team. It was supposed to be like a top three, Kev, okay? You pick eight teams here. I could have done that. Okay. <laughs> well, it's Olympic trials, Jimmy. It's not easy. Uh, well, it just shows you how much parity there is already in uh, mixed doubles. So uh, we'll be watching out for that. Uh, keep our fingers crossed uh, that, that they'll be able to get it underway. Provincial playoffs were taking place this past weekend in a couple of provinces. And uh, there's some interesting things uh, that have happened, particularly in Manitoba, uh, where they have uh, determined to rep. Uh, Jennifer Jones is going to be uh, going to the Olympics, so she was not uh, at the Provincials. Carrie Anderson is uh, with Team Canada, so she's already there. Uh, so everyone thought this would be a chance for Tracy Fleury, uh, by the way, the world's number one team. But, Kevin, not so much. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, curling's a funny game, hey? When you get done something like the Olympic trials and you don't win it, what does that do to the team in the short term? And that's something you need to look at in Tracy Fleury's case. I think, you know, they were so close to getting it to go to the Olympic Games and then not going, and Jennifer ended up winning. And now I think you see the repercussions in, uh, in their play at the uh, provincial level. Just uh, shocking. They didn't even make the playoffs, which is quite amazing. But the three teams that did, pretty exciting for Manitoba curling. All three super young teams, um, starting with the semifinals. Caitlin Jones, so... Uh, Originally out of the uh, Maritimes, definitely had some into, intern issues. And uh, Warren and I, of course, talk about this type of stuff all the time. And basically, it's just kind of a sliding wide a little bit. Actually, I uh, worked with Corey Dropkin. He's got the same kind of thing with his intern, going a little bit wide. You know, his outturn is deadly intern, slide a little wide, a little soft. And, and of course, with ice, it curls five, six feet. That's dangerous. Anyway, that's what I saw in Caitlin Jones. Um, just having trouble with that intern, sliding wide. And if, if she turned it, it would crash into the guards. If she didn't turn it because she's sliding wide, she'd crash on the outside guard. So there's just some uh, fundamental stuff that needs to be worked on there. Played against Chrisley Watling. And I don't know much about Christy, but I was paying attention to the team. And uh, 
Well, it was a great game in the semifinal. Big steal of two and seven really put Watley in control and ended up winning eight to five. And then had to go against Mackenzie Zacharias in the final. And that's a young team too, but they've got a little bit more experience. They've battled through more than what Watling's team had. And I think that was probably the difference uh, in the game. A really good game, tie game coming home. You can't ask for more than that. 5-5 five, five coming home and, and Zacharias has hammer and got the deuce. Made a, not an open hit, but a, a a fairly easy intern hit around the corner uh, to win that game. But you know what? If, if if I were a person in charge of curling Manitoba, I'd be pretty happy with what I see happening in women's curling in Manitoba. When you've got Tracy Flurry, the overwhelming favorite, and then these three really good young teams coming up behind Tracy, Jennifer, and Carrie Anderson. Wow, what depth. Six teams that are really, really good in that province. Uh, even a few more than that. But uh, the future is really strong for uh, for Manitoba curling, especially on the women's side. Yeah, here we go again. You've got these five teams right now that uh, rank right up there in the on the Canadian world ranking system for the most part. But when you come down to the Canadian championship, only one of them can play in the Canadian championship. And we saw last year when the thing was opened up slightly, there was five women's teams from Manitoba that played in the Scotties. And here we have, again, the number one ranked team in the world may not be in the Canadian Championship. She will have a chance through that wild card game on the Friday, but should she lose that, uh, which is certainly possible, she wouldn't be in the Canadian Championship. So it's just uh, it's just crazy that you could have a Canadian Championship that does not have the number one ranked team in the world in it, I think. Warren, how do you get into the wild card position if you didn't win your province? How, and how many teams are in that? There's two, and basically it's the top two ranks, uh, I believe is how they do it, Kevin, that uh, are not in the Scotties. Am, am I correct in that one? Yeah, and so even if even if Tracy were to win that game, I, and I'm not sure who she's going to play uh, to get to get that spot, but it doesn't matter. Somebody that deserves to be in the national championship, <laughs> whoever it is, and that's that's the part that kind of bothers me. It, like, yes, you know, if Tracy were to lose, that's a shame to not have number one. But they're playing. Like she's playing at somebody really, really good too. That should be in the in the championship also. So that's kind of the problem I see. There's no real good answer uh, to that wild card game. Um, I guess it's kind of exciting, but I'd rather watch both of those top teams for the entire week. Uh, speaking of Christmas gifts, uh, Brad Gushu wants a alternate to go to the Olympics. Uh, who's that going to be? Kevin, it says here, no surprises. Warren sent me a note, but he wouldn't tell me who it is. Okay. <laughs> so Mark Kennedy is going as a, as the fifth and the alternate. No surprise at all. Um, if there's a choice, I know Mark Kennedy would be up there for me too, because I'm definitely a team player. Um, played with Mark for, geez, a, a, not just played with Mark, but actually Mark um, Mark and I actually owned an M&M meat shop together. And he also worked for me at the curling uh, shop for many, many years. So um, we've known each other for a long time and he's a really good team player. But I think more important than that, he could play every position. Um, now, if, if Brad Gushu were to go down, Mark Nichols would likely step into skip. I don't think there's any question about that. But Mark Kennedy could throw lead second or third at the very highest level. So a terrific guy to have come in. The other part that I want to mention is all the work that Mark did back in the day to get his intern and his outturn identical so that when somebody like a Brad Gushu, who doesn't really know Mark Kennedy that well with how he throws it, it's not really that big a factor because even as a lefty, he throws it from the center. So his tangents are equal. It's easy to broom him. 
And I think that matters too, because if something happens, hopefully nothing does, but if something were to happen to one of the players on the team and Mark has to come in, he's really easy to broom. And I think that matters as well. Is there a chance or will it automatically, will we see Mark Kennedy play or is it only because if someone got injured, Kevin, or, or they, they don't curl very well, or might there be a plan to say, okay, Mark, you're going to start to curl, you know, two or three days in well, the other, so someone else can get a break. Yeah, no, I, I would be shocked if they, uh, for any other reason than injury or sickness, um, I guess somebody playing real bad, but that's not going to happen. You got Walker and Gallant and, and Mark Nichols, and they're, they're, that's just not going to happen. So I, I would be shocked if Mark played. Um, I'd be worried if Mark played because that means one of the one of the top players on Gushu's team are in trouble. So, uh, but Mark can sweep really well too. So, uh, so he's got all those attributes. It's just, um, you no, know, as a fifth, you, you, you don't want to have to play. Absolutely. That means that team Canada is doing well, playing well and, uh, winning, uh, lots of games and that, uh, just got to get into that playoffs and, uh, and let it ride. But I'll tell you what, getting into the final four, it will not be easy at all. We should mention that, uh, that's going to be the situation on the Gushu team, but the Jennifer Jones team is slightly different. They have a structured five-player team, and you will see Lisa Weigel play without question. Uh, I don't know how many games, but they, they certainly will put her in the rotation. So it's a little different situation than the Gushu team, whereas Kevin says Mark Kennedy is there in case something happens to one of the other players. That's a really good point, Warren, that, that uh, on Jennifer's side, it is an actual five-person team. If they do well, if, if Jennifer and company uh, get on the podium someplace, uh, I, I, you may see the, the women's side of curling actually take a drastic change into five-person teams because it takes a lot of heat off of, you know, the mums that have little ones, young ones at home, and, and take some of the heat off when you play a, a, a tour schedule and maybe some of the players can miss some weeks to to give their the family a break. I think it makes perfect sense, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if Jennifer's team do get on the podium. What happens next in the women's side of our sport? It could be very exciting. Mark Kennedy is a fifth. I mean, if that was hockey, you know, you had Ovechkin, Sid Crosby, and Austin Matthews. It's like having Connor McDavid as your alternate. <laughs> Holy man! Uh, there you go. That's what's happening around the uh, curling world. Thanks a lot to Sports Interactions for sponsoring that. Hot Rock Topics, uh, brought to you by Coyote Tractor. Uh, we really appreciate those guys and all our sponsors. Coyote Tractor, proud partner of Team Brad Jacobs and the Grand Slam of Curling. Coyote, we dig dirt. So today on Hot Rock Topics, we're going to have a little fun. Uh, like I said at the top of the show, uh, we're going to get your number one grievance, Kevin, and your number one Warren uh, grievance in curling. Kev, that's not so bad because you're, you you don't grieve too much about everything. But but more like I said, Warren has Warren about nine. Does. Warren has about <laughs> nine per hour. So <laughs> so this may be the toughest choice you've ever made in your life, Warren. What your number one grievance is? It's kind of like uh, the inside curling version of uh, the Seinfeld uh, Festivus on Seinfeld. Everyone remembers that show. An airing of grievances. Let's start with you, Kevin. You got to you got to pick your number one thing, I guess, that you'd want to see changed, or what what bugs you about curling. This would have been a tough one to, to probably answer, except I had a wonderful discussion with um, a journalist from Sportsnet.ca actually to talk about where curling's at and the future of curling, and I just have a great discussion. We talked for almost an hour, and uh, during that talk, it's funny, you know, we kept talking about all the different things in curling, and kept coming back to 
to widening the bottom of the pyramid. It just, uh, it just kept coming back to there. And how do we widen the bottom of the period? How do we make more, get more young people playing our sport so that we widen the bottom, therefore it's a little bit wider at the top? And we, we kept coming back to that all the time. And that's kind of what we, what I guess my grievance is, I don't think we're paying enough attention to grassroots. I don't think the structure of our sport is solid right now. The, the table legs are wobbling. Um, and that's simply, I think, because the uh, we just need our provincial associations. This is really important in Canadian curling to not be in charge of high performance curling. They just need to be in charge of club curling, getting curling into schools, junior bond spiels, and lots of events where it's more fun for the kids. And I think that's so important at the club level across all the provinces. Why would we think Curling Canada knows what's going on in Prince Edward Island, BC, and, uh, and Saskatchewan? Why would we think that? It doesn't make sense. But the provincial associations know what's going on in their particular province. So I guess if I have to pick a grievance, it's structure right now of our sport and uh, and trying to build a proper shaped pyramid in the country as wide and as vast as ours and get way more kids curling and that is something that we we desperately need to do and and i don't think it would be hard jimmy when you look back over the years uh our junior bond spiel that we ran the kevin martin junior bond spiel that we ran for 17 years 78 teams every year we always had a big banquet i'd love to see more of those events run by the provincial associations nice big banquet we always gave out the hexervay scholarships uh, at the banquet and it was really cool for the 12 year olds to be able to watch and uh, and try to mimic the older really good kids at the event so i think it's pretty simple but it's frustrating and that i guess that's my grievance jimmy okay hansen uh, lay it on us and you only get one warren okay by the way we won't talk about my number one grievance because i think we all we know what that is we've beat it up many times and that is the structure of our national championships but I have an interesting one you've never heard me talk about before, but uh, during my time at Curling Canada, I tried to get this moving a couple of times, but there was no traction. We have an interesting thing with the sport of curling in that we really don't have any standards on equipment. So there's nothing to stop you except at the top level of the sport where you have to have a certain type of br- uh, pad on your brush when you go out there. There's nothing on the length of the handle of the brush, I don't believe on the on the size of the head. Uh, the slider that you put on your foot, it can be anything you could come up with. There's nothing to stop you from using anything. And a gripper on the opposite foot, the same thing. And that is one that created a lot of problems a few years ago because people were using old grippers and they were shedding. And it was one of the major causes of, of picks. And then that was kind of uh, pulled together, but still no standards. But the one that really drives me crazy is the device that you can use to slide with when you're delivering. And if we go back into time, this was never an issue because everybody had a straw broom and it was a straw broom that you used to to slide with. No problem. Uh, In my time, there was some of us learned to slide without even having the broom touch the ice because of turning your foot sideways, you could do that. And that became a little bit of a, a norm for some. But then along came the cloth covered broom, the rink rat and a couple of others that now if you were sliding out of the hack with the broom down on the ice in your left arm, if you're right handed, it started to drag, it started to pull back. So all of a sudden there became the sliding broom and uh, people were then carrying two brooms if you have a cloth covered broom, one to sweep with and one to slide with. And then the other one was the tuck delivery. And uh, that created a similar type of problem because those who have a tuck delivery, you may notice they have the broom kind of placed flat on the ice 
to the left of their body, and the broom has can't have any resistance to it, or it will have huge repercussions. So that was okay, because still back in those days, it was a regular corn broom that was used. And then all sorts of things started to happen. Once brushes came into the scene, well, many people decided that they they couldn't slide with the brush, so they, they then developed what was called a, a crutch or a support of some kind. It was actually, and still is, professionally manufactured. But the one that really drives me crazy is the tuck delivery, or as we may refer to it, the Manitoba slide, where there hasn't been a corn broom used on the ice for probably 25 to 30 years. And we see these people sliding out with these old beat up corn brooms with tape all around them. There's still straw in that broom. My point always has been that broom can shed. And any of those pieces from straw on that ice could cause all sorts of havoc. Um, I tried to get corn brooms banned 10, 15 years ago because they should be. With the rocks we're using today, if someone went out on the ice with a corn broom, it, the sheet would be unplayable within an end. Yet, there's nothing to stop someone from going out there with a corn broom. So that's my pet peeve, that there's no equipment standards in this sport. There needs to be, and particularly, the use of those old, beat-up, 100-year-old corn brooms that are still being used to slide. I, I thought this past weekend was kind of interesting. The young Manitoba women's team, Watling, two of them have tucked deliveries, and they're, they're sliding with these old, beat-up corn brooms. And I'm going, I started laughing to myself that... Those two players are about 22 years old. They never saw a corn broom on a sheet of curling ice in their lives. Where did they get those things from? Anyway, my pet peeve. <laughs> Probably your basement, Warren, is where they got them from when you curled <laughs> seven years ago. <laughs> well, phew, phew. I'm, you know what? I'm wiping the sweat off my brow, Kevin. I thought your grievance, uh, Warren, I was ready for you to come in and go, fire everybody in curling. We're going to start over. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot to Coyote Tractor uh, for sponsoring that. Uh, we appreciate it. Mailbag, special mailbag. We got five of them uh, that we're gonna we're gonna get to. Hopefully, mailbag is brought to you by Nestle Boost. We want to thank those guys. Up your nutrition game with Boost, convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you're guaranteed to love. Uh, this first email probably is, uh, you guys have covered this uh, already, it says, hi, everybody. Without a doubt, the Olympics have shaken up the game and matured it in a way that was absolutely necessary. I personally am still very worried for the club level involvement, though. Uh, as a 38-year-old, I look around the club and I'm worried for five to 10 years down the road. I feel there is a Mack truck heading for some clubs, and if they don't start adapting and bringing a younger generation to replace those nearest to the door... There is going to be trouble. What does that mean? Nearest the door. He's waiting for people to die. I don't know what the answer is, but I uh, do not see movement to doing something happening fast enough. Kev, you you just spoke about that. I'm sure that's what this guy means, doesn't he? Well, I don't I don't really know um, what 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 he what he's thinking, but I, I certainly feel strongly about it. But basically, even not just in kids in clubs, but even just getting the uh, the directors of the club, the board of directors, young. And that doesn't mean junior age, but just young, like getting new ideas coming into the club and and, and fun ideas of how we're going to run bond spiels and, and to change it up a little bit, not to just have it always the same. And uh, one thing that I got a little place is called White Law, Alberta. Now, that's up by Fairview, Alberta, not too far from Grand Prairie, Peace River uh, up there, but built a three-sheet club. Uh, all about bond spiels, all about fun, all about bond spiels. And actually, they put in the kitchen um, a way to cook steaks. So you can have like st 
charbroiled steaks um, at banquets. And you know what? They just went that kind of went off on their own direction there a little bit and just kind of made the club a little bit different. And they're more of a, a bond spiel club than a than one with leagues. Uh, they worry about getting their revenues out of out of uh, fun spiels and stuff. So kind of a different direction. And there's no reason why clubs can't go off on their own direction and, and figure out their way to to entice new young members, not just juniors, but juniors, of course, and get school kids into the into the club. But but even just young members, young families where, you know, uh, you need to get out of the house once in a while, both as a husband and a wife. And do you play together? Maybe. Or do you play just separately and with your friends and, and uh, whatever. Uh, but these are the things that we need to have talked about at, at the club level and not just the same old Tuesday night men's league and Wednesday night women's. Let's just think about how to make it a little bit different. Warren, this sounds like this email could have your name on it. Yeah, you've been kind of preaching about this. Well, yeah, it's, it's a broad topic. I should also mention that the email came from Curtis Fairhurst from Calgary. And Curtis and I have had a fair exchange here in the last couple of weeks on a number of things. He's been very involved in amalgamating all those associations in Alberta. So this is a, a person who's got some background in this whole thing, and I think he understands it. I think one of the big issues is it's not just curling that does this. I look at hockey as the same thing because I went through minor hockey program 50 years ago. And the fact is, it's one size fits all. When you start to come into these sports, it's all aimed at high performance, high performance. As you go down the, down the line, if you don't start moving in that direction, in many cases, you just fade out of the picture, particularly when you go from a junior age to an adult age. And I think there needs to be two, two paths created. Uh, one is you come in, you start to play, and you figure out, oh, do I want to play recreationally and have fun? Do I want to try to become the best and then you need to go left or right. I mean, I look back at when I played in high school. I can, I can recall there was probably 50, 60 kids. They were part of the program. And I'm the only one that I can think of slightly. They ever continued with the sport in any way, shape, or form, never mind at the at the, uh, the top level versus the recreational. So I think that's one of the issues. We, we come at uh, the sport with a one-size-fits-all. It's all high performance. And if you don't go down that track, you get left behind. And particularly provincial associations, as I look around me, I see their focus is on provincial playdowns, and I, I don't see most of them focusing much beyond that. And, and even to the point that they went and moved the Canadian Championship to the end of March uh, to accommodate what they sort of felt was, well, there's nothing left for these young people to play in if we run the playoffs in January uh, or maybe even December so they can attend a national championship in, in, in the January or February. And I, I guess I look at the fact, well, why aren't you developing other things for them to play in, particularly doubles? Doubles is part of the future. Uh, there's no structured doubles program. Some clubs are probably doing a good job of it. Others are not touching it at all. And so I think, again, as Kevin says, it's the provincial associations that need to step up and take charge of this whole thing in a much different way than they have at this point. Uh, David Bullock from Castleguard, BC, writes us. Uh, hey, guys, why not alternate hammer every end so each team is guaranteed an equal number of last rocks? Uh, would there be less incentive to blank ends? The winner of uh, the draw to the button would have the choice of hammer in the odd or even ends. Kev? There's nothing wrong with this idea other than it's completely changing the, the fundamentals of strategy in our game. Trying to figure out how to get hammer in 6 and 8 or in 6, 8 and 10, depending on the length of game. So that's where the big change would be. It's funny, you know, when, uh, of course, my son Kark playing with Botcher, watching them a few years ago. And, I, you know, they know that they're, they're supposed to try to get hammer in 6, 8, and 10. 
They know that. It's a very common thing. But when they were younger, a few years ago, every game, guess what? They've got hammer and seven and nine. <laughs> they could never figure out how in the heck to get hammer and six, eight and 10. And of course, they end up losing a lot of games because of that. And that's a major part of the chess match is having hammer in the Latin two of the last three ends. Um, it's, it's so important to winning and losing in our sport. And if it's automatic, who has hammer and what ends, you're taking a huge part of the game away from the skip. Um, the top skips magically have hammer in six, eight, and 10. And there's nothing magic about it. They just know how to play the chess pieces so that, that it occurs that way late in the game. And the young teams magically have the hammer in seven and nine. And after the game, I'm sure they talk to their coach and they're shaking their head going, well, why didn't we not have a hammer again? And, you know, and that's just the way it goes. And then over time, you learn how to get that hammer in, in the even ends. And, and magically enough, you start to win more. So uh, I appreciate the idea because... Obviously, that having the exact same amount of hammers does make sense. The problem is it would change, fundamentally change our entire sport from a strategic uh, standpoint. So you do a draw to the button. If you win it, you get the choice of hammering the odd or even ends. So who would not pick the even ends, Kevin, if you had the choice? Wouldn't everybody? <laughs> everybody would want a hammer in six and eight or six, eight and 10, depending on, you know, how length the game. But uh, yeah, it, it's just, uh, I, I don't see that happening. Um, I do understand the reasoning, though, because of uh, uh, having the same amount of hammers. And you probably wouldn't see any blank ends because the other team gets hammer. You'd draw for one. Uh, you'd take your single. Um, but then you just kind of put the defensive play on the other foot. They'd want to force you to one so they get the hammer back. You know what I mean? Um, or even maybe even try to get a blank out of it. But what he's brought up here is it's a problem. And if we look to the... Olympic trials final game between Gushu and Jacobs. Gushu had last rock in the first end. And for all intents and purposes, and you and I, Kevin, have talked about this, it was pretty obvious by the time we got into the second, third end, even to Jacobs, unless something strange happened in that game, Gushu was going to win it because they're that good. And this has kind of evolved through time. When, when I first became involved with the sport, certainly the skill levels weren't anywhere near what they are today for various reasons. And the philosophy then was try and score on the even ends was always the approach to life. But then we got into the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, the game evolved further. The players got better, and the bang, 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 2-1 games became a reality. And at that point, the philosophy changed. It became when you have the hammer, try to score two and try and create the situation that the other team only gets one when they've got the hammer, and there wasn't that big a concern as to odd ends, even ends. And then again, we evolved into the last probably 10, 15 years, where again, the players have got better and better and better. And this issue of having last rock in that 10-10 has become critical. And down to the point, I saw an interesting, if, if you watch, Kevin, that game between Czechoslovakia and Den or Czech Republic and Denmark, the skip of the Czech team in the ninth end was down one with the hammer playing nine. And rather than take a simple hit and stay for one, he tried what I thought was a practically impossible double takeout uh, to try and blank the end. And as a result, he just nudged the other team over, the Danes over, and they scored two. So he was down three coming home. And I'm going, hmm. He didn't see his chances of winning to the degree that he tried this really, really almost impossible double versus hitting and staying one to be tied going home without the hammer. So it's an issue, I think, that uh, 
What David brings up here is a concern, but exactly what is the solution to it, I think, is going to take a lot more discussion. But uh, uh, it's an interesting point. It, it is an issue, I think. Uh, email number three, gentlemen. Well, that's nice. I've never been referred to as that. <laughs> no, that was Kevin and I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gentlemen, and you too, Jim. Uh, there are a few things I've been thinking about and uh, wonder what your thoughts are, but let's look at the Olympic qualifiers in the U.S. and Canada. I'd love to know your opinions on how this played out and your thoughts about the final three-team playoff in Canada versus the U.S. Uh, best-of-three system. I recognize that the bench isn't very deep in the U.S., and one would hate that uh, one bad moment uh, would ruin the selection pro- process, which is why I like the idea of a two-out-of-three final. Letting lesser-ranked teams into the playoff increases the risk to the top teams, but with the round robin, the cream should rise to the top if you don't dig too deep into the pool. Rather than that risk, which you guys seem to be against, I think the greater risk is allowing everything to come down to one single game where something other than the team skill can enter into the mix. I note that if we left it to the round robin event and simply just have the top two in the playoff, it would have been Gushu Jacobs and Flurry Jones, both of which would have been worthy reps and would make a two out of three competition reasonable to consider. In the U.S., if the playoff had been a sudden death, John Schuster would not be going to the Olympics. Corey Dropkin would. Uh, that's from Greg Wolf. Uh, thanks a lot, Greg, for that. Uh, Warren, let's start with you. Well, I think he he makes a point. Um, I I think with the system that the U.S. used this uh, last go-round, round-robin with the top two teams entering into a best of three, you you should be guaranteed of getting one of your best teams. And he's right. The deeper you go into the pool, the more likely you are to, to pull out a team that's got three, maybe even four losses going up against a team that has maybe been undefeated. And, of course, we had that happen in the Canadian trials. So I I like the idea of it being the fairest way to determine a winner. When you look at the situation, particularly in Canada, this event is being marketed as an event. So it needs a television audience. It needs an audience in the building to make it all work properly. And whether that's right or whether it's wrong, that's the way it is. And so using that approach to life, you're going to have that sudden death game and uh, anything can happen. The best of three, of course, is the problem because I guess in the NHL, you can have a best of seven playoff and anytime after the fourth game, somebody can be declared the winner and the remaining games are canceled. I don't think in Canada, we're strong enough yet as a, a sport within the television realm um, and, and the spectator realm to be able to do that, I, I think it's ideal, but uh, maybe it will happen down the path somewhere in the future as to that's the way the winners will be determined. But uh, good point brought to us by Greg. Well, um, actually, Corey Dropkin would have went to the last Olympics as well. Uh, John Schuster winning in Pyeongchang wouldn't have happened because uh, uh, Corey Dropkin won the first game last time. Uh, of the best of three. So it would have been Dropkin going to two Olympics back to back. So I think Corey would vote for the Canadian system, uh, actually, <laughs> at least in the last few years. But, you know, obviously, all joking aside, um, having more, you know, having a best of three, best of five, best of seven, um, you know, brings out the better team. But but Warren's bang on. It's a kind of a moot point in Canada right now. It's I just don't see it being possible. But it's a great email because you're right. Um, a best two out of three or, or so on, uh, a better chance of bringing a team. Now, this year, of course, in Canada, it's really hard to argue. 
if uh, if Brad Jacobs had a won the game instead of Brad Gushu, we had a great rep either way. Same on the women's side. If if uh, if Jennifer didn't win that game and Tracy makes that last intern tap and goes, everybody's happy with that too. Both teams earned earned the right, and there's no weakness there at all. So I don't think it's a huge point in Canada this time, but it may be sometime in the future, and that's important. But uh, for now, I don't think there's really a way to uh, to have a best two out of three on on Canadian television. To, to Warren's point, there's there's always it seems to be a lot of talk all the time in curling here that you know we we have to make sure the best teams get through. You know we got to make sure our playdowns and our qualifiers are always that we get the best team. Well, sports isn't like that. You know, you don't you don't always get the best team, uh, right? But not the the best teams don't make the playoffs in hockey, and a lot of the best teams get get waxed in the first round. You know, so that that's the way it is. But what you got to remember, Jim, in in the sport of curling, whether it's a world championship or Olympics, uh, there's a great amount of money in this country uh, goes behind all these sports to perform at the world level. So there's a constant pressure for Canadian teams in whatever sport it is when they go to the world level or go to the Olympics to bring back at least a bronze medal. And so there is a lot of heat there. I'll tell you what, I sat at a hockey game one time with Gary Bettman um, and I'd asked him, who do you cheer for? Uh, you know, who, who, do you, who, do, who would you like to see win the Stanley Cup? And I thought he's going to give me a vanilla answer. You know, I'd li- like to see everyone. He, he unequivocally said, absolutely, hands down, I want the New York uh, Rangers or the New York Islanders to get in based on raw numbers of fans. There's 20 million people who live around there, right? And you're right, Warren. It was all about the cash, right? Well, sure. And I mean, you can you can go back to look at even within Canada, and certainly all the years I was there, the the, every, the final everybody hoped for was Alberta versus Ontario, because that was going to provide the, the largest television audience, without question. So, I mean, it's the same thing. But uh, in these international sports where medals are attached, um, there's huge pressure from the funding agencies to have the best possible team there. Greg Wolf, thanks a lot for that email. Number four, email comes from Gareth Harvey. I was really interested to hear your discussion about the possible rule change and how they need to reflect the growth of curling around the world and not just in Canada. As a British guy living in Switzerland, I've always found it odd that in a round-robin game, you can't have a tie. I know you don't really uh, do ties in North American sports, or for what little I know, but in most European sports, football, rugby, field hockey, etc., a draw is a perfectly acceptable result. Yes, this change would be very unpopular with, well, virtually everybody. <laughs> Excuse me. But why not three points for a win and one for a draw? I'd be curious to see how it would change tactics. Would it produce more aggressive play? Currently going into the final end up without hammer. You know, you can give up one and you'll probably win in the extra end. Would it encourage teams to try and take bigger risks to give themselves a two-point-plus cushion going into the final end? And by the way, the new proposed rule change about the lack of extra ends sounds like the worst of both worlds to me. Either have a draw or don't. Oh, and I'm well aware this doesn't solve the problem of the extra ends in knockout games. Just a thought. That's from Gareth Harvey. Kev? Well, yeah, we we talked to a lot of the top players about this particular scenario and uh, and like for me, I definitely I, I don't have a problem with uh, with having the game be tied and a draw to the button to to decide the winner, um, especially if if you have the ability to triangulate the result so that it's one draw, and if both cover the pin, you triangulate it's the closest to the middle, like the middle of the stone, how close it is to the middle, and I think that you know then there's always a winner right away, so that you actually bring in one more thing where three for a clean win. 
two for a draw the button win, one for a draw the button loss, and zero if it's a straight loss. Um, it cuts down on tie breaks. There's, there's lots of good reasons to do it. And I do understand the concerns of the top players going, it could change the strategy late in the game because, you know, you may only need one point to make the playoff. So all of a sudden, you're happy with a tie, even if you don't win the draw of the button to break the tie. Uh, Bruce Mowat's point of, uh, yeah, but Kevin, you you could go through an event and keep tying and winning the draw of the button and end up qualifying for the playoffs and have never won a game you've just won a bunch of draw the buttons so you know there's there's certainly arguments both ways i kind of like it i i I agree with this fella that uh that we could go that way and try it at least let's let's give it a go an honest try because lots of sports do either have ties or have uh, shootouts um to decide things and uh i'd like to see it tried i i i think it has some merit I think this again is is uh, one of the many issues that we have in this sport because of how it's evolved and, and the way it's played. And let me first emphasize when we talk about not having extra ends or, or a way of breaking a tie, this is round robin games. This isn't playoff games. And, and right now with the 10 end games, there's a huge timing issue with these extra ends that's creating grief for everyone. And even with an eight end game, you know you're adding another probably. 15 minutes to the game if you have to go into an extra end, which creates all sorts of problems in that round robin aspect of any competition. But I think the other thing we got to look at is um, the success rate of people having last rock in a final end or extra end. We know right now that the top level of this game, you go in an extra end, the team with a hammer probably has about an 80 to 85% ch- chance of being the winner. That's to some degree got to play into all this. I don't really know the solution to it, but I do believe that it requires a little more analysis, a little more experimenting. But I think extra ends in the round robin aspect of these major events does have to become a thing of the past. And I think how we deal with it, there's maybe more than one way to approach it, but I think it needs to be discontinued and we need to find another solution. Okay, uh, final email. Uh, we weren't going to do this, but we'll read it and try and get a quick comment from you guys. Because as you said, Warren, and you, Kevin, uh, this thing could be six shows back to back. It's from Elizabeth Turner from Toronto. She says, I really enjoy listening to your podcast. I would like to hear a show about the business and in particular, the financial aspects of running a curling team. For example, how much money in sponsorship is needed to cover the yearly costs and what obligations do the teams have to their sponsors? Are they obligated to play in certain events? Kevin mentioned that his team had a publicist. I imagine only a few teams would be able to earn enough money to have a support staff. Uh, In one of Brendan Botcher's interviews with the press, he mentioned that he didn't have a communications specialist, hence the awkwardly worded statement. Do the members of the team bring their own strengths, i.e. ability to attract sponsors, social media, accounting, marketing, um, to the table when running the team? What happens with the sponsorship money when... um, team member leaves the team do they take their portion of the money with them and what if they are a carded athlete does curling canada provide any resources to help teams learn to manage themselves and how would a team even get started are some players paid members of the team or are the winnings and sponsorship split four ways evenly i find it fascinating given the increased professionalism and polished coverage of smaller events on youtube to learn how the circuit is set up Thank you for your consideration of my idea. That's from Elizabeth. Kev, you've, you've talked about this a lot uh, over the course of the shows. 
Well, yeah, it's such a big topic. And thank you very much, Elizabeth. What you've done to us is uh, you've made a topic here that we're going to have to have a, a show on. Um, it was funny. I, I made some notes, just some quick notes as to what I would like to talk about when it comes to this. And there, it's over a page. So um, I, I think we need to do a show on this. Um, but I do think it's important from a team standpoint, you break up into revenues and expenses like any business and as you get to well known and you build your brand you can increase your revenues um hopefully keep your expenses down and show more profit as a team it's 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 like that and i would love to have the opportunity but it's going to be a lot longer than we have today and really dive into this thing and explain exactly the the staff behind the scenes and why you hire the staff you made a great point elizabeth when it came to brendan botcher not having a pr person um, Lorraine Quotero well, has been since 1998 my PR person and still is today. And we had a great chat in, uh, in Montreal about this exact scenario and how her ears blew off uh, when she read the, the statement that was released uh, by Team Botcher. Uh, she went, oh, oh, this is going to blow up big time. <laughs> and of course it did because it just wasn't written in, in any type of manner that a professional would have done. So... That's the, the what I see, and I can't wait to talk about it in a, in, a, in a show where we need to have on players about their team budget and how it's going to build going forward. Thank you, Elizabeth. And, uh, and I'm going to jump off that fence right now, Jimmy. There's a basic philosophy in the uh, media relations world is when you're standing in front of the media, tell the truth and beg for forgiveness. Because uh, if you do otherwise, it'll get out. There's no question it'll get out. And uh, as many times as I offered that advice over the years, uh, not too often was it uh, taken that way. And if you try to smooth things over by not telling exactly what happened, uh, you won't get away with it. Warren, before we leave this, I, I'm, I'm sure back in your day, uh, sponsorship wasn't a problem because there probably wasn't any sponsorship of teams. Or was there? And, when, and if and when did it start, Warren? I think sponsorship began to to raise its head in the late 60s uh, as to where it became involved. Um, back in my day, we had different sponsors. I can remember the years I played with Hector Gervais. Interesting enough, Boston Pizza uh, was our sponsor. And it wasn't the kind of dollars that are out there today, but it was significant. And again, I remember us having the hassles back then when we are going to Briars or other national championships that we could no longer carry the name of those sponsors. And uh, I was in the broom business and I used a lot of brooms. And uh, the company I was representing, Midwestern, they were a sponsor of our team. And I remember I was grumbling the fact, well, if Canadian Curling Association doesn't want us to put a Midwestern broom, uh, broom logo on our arms, are they going to give us a, a couple of dozen curling brooms to play in the briar? Of course, that wasn't going to happen. But so it's always been around and it's never been probably dealt with properly. And, and again, as Kevin suggests, everything in this email is a topic for a one hour show. And I think maybe Kevin, I need to talk about uh, putting up Kevin Martin Consulting to begin to put a course together on how this is all done. Because right now, um, I think everybody is out there kind of flailing around, feeling their own way along and not knowing for sure exactly what to do or how to do it. Thank you very much to Nestle Boost uh, for sponsoring the mailbag segment. Uh, we would also like to uh, reach out to curling clubs uh, all around the world. Uh, we've got another Zoom call coming up. If you want to do a Zoom call with Kevin and Warren and myself to discuss anything you like, uh, we would be happy to do that. We do it for about an hour. Uh, the clubs we have done really enjoyed it. Uh, and, and Kevin and Warren were very helpful to those clubs. 
Uh, also, a big thank you to Rod Paulson. Thanks very much, Rod, for all you're doing on our Facebook group uh, and our Facebook page. Uh, Rod has a company called In-House Strategies. Uh, send your email, insidecurling at gmail.com. Boys, thanks a lot. Merry Christmas to everybody. Uh, and thanks all, all our fans and all our sponsors for listening. This has been another episode of Inside Curling. Go away and do your Christmas shopping, Kevin. You too, Warren. Don't be the Grinch, Warren, this Christmas, okay? <laughs> Merry Christmas. Sounds good, Jimmy. Thanks. Merry Christmas. <laughs>